With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why am I with Seabus Super? Because I'm a builder and they take care of me. Well, I had an accident on the work site and they helped me out, no worries. Yeah, they helped me out real fast. Mate, they just get me. Because they are for all of us. Seabus, for all of us. To consider if Seabus is right for you, visit seabussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. This is the final word, story time. The weekend where we relax, put our feet up and let some tales unwind. I'm Jeff Lemon. Adam Collins is the other person you will hear momentarily. Both of us are coming to you this week from being locked inside hotels. <laughs> um, this is now what we do with our lives. And as far as places to be locked in go, it's a pretty good option. Uh, all of the people who are complaining about it can pretty much go and give themselves a stern talking to because it's not so bad here and it's not so bad there. Yeah, last week I was talking to you, Jeff, from Southampton where I was looking at the ground. Well, this week I'm at Old Trafford and I'm looking at a car park. Although, to be fair, it's uh, it's not so bad. It's sunny outside. Uh, last night was a really enjoyable sort <laughs> of one what day. what a car park. <laughs> uh, what a car park. Well, I guess what I'm saying is it, it, could be, it, it could be bleaker. You think Manchester looking into a car park. I'm actually looking at the University Academy 92, which is that um, mm-hmm. the class of 92 Manchester United footballers who... Think they invested in that part of the university, something like that. But yes, this is where I am for the next week or so during the one day internationals. And then I'll return to normal life, which it doesn't sound like that big a deal. And it won't be for me, but some people have been locked in these hotels. I say locked in, that's the, the wrong wrong form of words, but they've been in these biosecure bubbles for going on three months. So not a huge deal having done it for two weeks, but it'll be a fairly big adjustment for those who've been here for a long time. And I am coming to you from Brisbane, mm. Australia, because I'm now a Queenslander. Queenslander! A, a Queensland, Queenslander! Queenslander! Uh, I'm now a Queensland resident. I don't <laughs> suppose any actual Queenslander would allow me to call myself a Queenslander, having been here for 
about 30 hours at this point, but given that the world is the way it is and, and cricket is the way it is, I've relocated is the term to Queensland for the time being and am going to be going slowly mad in a hotel room in quarantine for the next two weeks. What you will do though is you'll make back, when you've been writing this book for the last however many months and it's been difficult for you to do what you normally would in terms of freelance writing commissions, I've noticed you've already written a couple of pieces while you've been in lockdown down so you'll probably make a oh, shitload yeah. of money while you while you're sitting in hotel quarantine so you know swings and roundabouts i don't think any freelancers ever make a shitload of money um but well you know, you know in relative terms. I'll, I'll do a shitload of work yes yes <laughs> that is one of the things yeah there, there are a lot of work projects that i can do given that the regulations here are that you cannot leave the room except with a police escort to go to an outside courtyard for a, a few minutes to get some fresh air. You're permitted to leave the hotel room to go to the statue of Wally Lewis and bow down at his knees <laughs> at Lang Park. That's the only as long as you physical don't activity. Make contact. Yes. <laughs> the only permitted physical activity going to shotgun a, a can of forex in front of the Wally Lewis sculpture. <laughs> um, We're going to have some so, fun with this. So I'm sure. <laughs> We will we'll get into more detail about this during the week once I know a little bit more. I only got in last night and I've been in a flurry of work in between times. So on the show today, later on the show, we are going to reboot our interview with Joseph Butler, mm. who was not able to be called Joe in his family because he already had a sister called Joe, so he had to be Joss. Joss Butler, Boss Jutler. But Jostler, however you know him uh, and however you love him, he's made a shitload of runs this summer for, for England across formats. Uh, we spoke to him during the World Cup last year where just before he went on to play, I think, the defining role in, in the final. I reckon Butler was more key than Stokes was really to making sure that England were, were in a position to win that final or draw that final and, you know, you know, win in inverted commas that final. So uh, we'll be speaking to him now. Yeah, it was a funny old interview, that one. Uh, I think at the time, it was the day before the group game at Lords. So Australia won last night against England for the first time in a long time in a one-day international. But, well, I say the first time in a long time. That was the last time in the Lord's group game. But I think over the last 15 games, Australia have won two of them or something like that. It's been a pretty barren run in 50-over format against the old enemy. But we were planning on spending like an hour with him. I think we had like an hour worth of questions planned and we misjudged the situation. It was our fault. Um, it was only a 20-minute chat. We didn't quite... Um, the communication uh, line of communication broke down a wee bit, which meant that the interview was cut a fraction short. So we filled in the gaps by... Uh, having a conversation with George DeBell. I don't think we'll put that in the back of this because a lot of that was sort of time sensitive and, and so on. But Joss did talk to us about the start of his career and how he learned to bat and the way that he holds the bat and little nuggets of detail like that, which I think will still be pretty interesting. So stick around for the end of story time for that. But before we do that, we are going to have a story time in which we look at some of the history of cricket in its strange and wonderful forms. And we do that via the medium of Nerd Pledge, also known as Nerd Pledge, uh, depending if you want to startle the police officers outside your room or not. Uh, and and I, will, I will live to find out if that was a good idea. <laughs> the thing about Nerd Pledge is it's a game and it's a game about cricket and it's a game that we play with people who want to support the show. They want to subscribe to the show and keep it going. And so they sign up on Patreon and instead of sending a regular amount of supporting dollars and cents they send a cricket specific amount of 
dollars and cents. This will blow your mind if you've never heard of it before. Cricket specific, the number will relate to cricket in some way. But here's the catch, people. Here's the catch. They don't tell us what it is. Maybe they give us a hint. Maybe they give us a clue, but they don't give us the answer. And we have to work out what the number means. This is the central conceit of Nerd Pledge. And if you've grasped that, you're ready to play with us. Uh, are you ready, Adam? Uh, I am. I am. And I, I know that we have a really good one off the top as well from Luke Kneebone, who's contributed $1.76. Thank you, Luke. Now, before we go into his number, I just want to note that Luke has sent us a beautiful piece of correspondence to go with his number. I dropped him a line before saying it was one of these lovely emails that you get that you want to reply to properly and give it due consideration, but in turn, it sits on your to-do list to write back for a long time. Well, that's where this email currently sits. Now, DM, I should say, in the Patreon inbox, but what I will do when uh, corresponding with Luke during the week is I'll ask him to read from some of it because it is quite powerful in, in different sections. So thank you, Luke. Uh, and let's turn to your number, which is $1.76. And Jeff, I, I am certain uh, that you have a, a 176 front of mind in innings that you were at in 2013. <laughs> I have a very small tattoo of 176 <laughs> just on, on the inside of my elbow where I can check it when I need to feel reassured. I've written about 176. I watched 176. The only thing 176 could ever be to me is the finest work, the masterpiece, the day out of Shane Robert Watson at the Oval in 2013. A man who is criticised for not making centuries often enough, for making too many 50s a large Joe Root. Too many 50s. He makes too many 50s. Like, that's a problem. The four test centuries that, that he made were, were used as a number to illustrate that he hadn't delivered, which is also fairly nonsensical. But on this day, everything worked. And sometimes a player in their, in their lives, in their career, they might have one day where everything goes for them. Everything clicks. And this was the day for Watto. He smoked every ball. I, I think he came to the middle in early in the day. Was he batting at three in that test match? Yeah, that, that was when they, they finally got Rogers and Warner together at the top of the list by the end mm. of that series, which of course went on to be quite a productive uh, partnership over the two or three years that followed. But yeah, that's when Warner returned to the team, started at six, ended up opening, and that gave Watson that opportunity mm. at three, which he took full advantage of during uh, those two back-to-back Asher series. And so he, he was out there early, and I think he was out in maybe the second last over of the day. Uh, Chris Wokes debuted that day. Simon Kerrigan, the spinner, debuted that day. Milo. Uh, Watson absolutely monstered them. He was very rude to, to, to these poor kids on debut and to everybody else. Everything came out of the middle. The crispness of the set. He just smashed shot after shot. And, and he even overturned an LBW decision on review after he'd got past his 100. So he, he got that particular hoodoo of getting past the 100, was taken care of. Then he was given out LB, reviewed it. It was too high going over. What a day. Everything went his way. Um, and and it, it stays with me. It was, a, it was a joyous moment watching Shane Watson uh, play to his absolute best in that Ashes test. Very nice recollections there, Jeff. Yeah, how often in life do we sort of sit and lament that nothing fucking works? that everything is going wrong and you're having a stinker of a day. Well, I'm, I'm sure what I felt that way through his career at different times, but the day that it comes together and it all goes right, I can't recall who it was that I was talking to recently about this, but the idea of documenting the day of someone's career when it, when it all goes well. And that was certainly the case at the Oval in 2013. I had a different slant on this. So George Headley, 
1930 on debut, uh, made 176 against England as a 21-year-old. He was just the 13th man to make a ton on his test debut, an area uh, of, of, I wouldn't say expertise of mine, but something I, a Wikipedia page I've revisited many, many times over the years, so I knew that's where I needed to go for this. But it was the start of one of the sort of great individual runs, especially when you consider it was his first series in, in test cricket. So he ends up making 703 runs in four test matches uh, with four tonnes and an average of 88, including a, a test 223 at Jamaica, which is the test match that we've returned to time and time again, which is the first test match at Sabina Park, uh, where Andy Sandham, after Headley makes his 2-2-3, responds with the first triple hundred in test cricket, the 3-2-5, which also happens to be uh, the final test match of Wilfred Rhodes, who started way back in 1899. So he just overlaps with George Headley, who goes on to have um, one of the most prolific test careers that's ever been either side of the Second World War and, of course, missing a bunch of cricket in between. So George Headley, that great series of 1930, 703 runs, but it all began with 176, just 21 years of age. Very nice, Adam. I know you like to get George Headley into the conversation wherever possible, (laughs) and as you should. Uh, The next number on our list comes from Adipti Akila. Uh, Thank you, Deepti. And Deepti has sent through $2.54. Now, what might 254 suggest to a, a discerning purveyor of cricket statistics, Adam? Well, Deepti is one of our great correspondents, so thank you. She is brilliant on Twitter, and I suspect that it could mean... Coley's unbeaten 254 at Poona in 2019. It could mean uh, Verinda Saywag's 254. This is a fairly crazy uh, Saywag innings. Uh, right uh, from the Saywagology Jared Kimber uh, playbook. 254 in just 247 deliveries uh, against Pakistan at Lahore in 2006. <laughs> By contrast, there's Joe Root's 254, which took 614 minutes, but uh, no less brilliant against uh, Pakistan at Manchester in 2016, where I am this week. That was one of the best innings I've ever seen in Test cricket. He was faultless and brilliant uh, across a couple of days there. But speaking of faultless and speaking of brilliant, the 254 that is most historically relevant, I would argue, is Bradman's 254 at Lord's. Uh, in 1930, Inside Edge magazine, back when Christian Ryan was editing it, and it was, it was a fabulous publication, voted it as the best innings ever played in Test cricket. And Bradman himself wrote in his autobiography, uh, Farewell to Cricket, uh, that uh, I'll quote from him here, practically... Without exception, every ball went where it was intended. Any artist must surely aim at perfection. And that is why I think Lord's 1930 is my first choice. He went on to make um, 12 double tons, but this was the first of those. Of course, the two triples as well. He did it all while he was age 22. And it's not just, I should add, uh, Brabham's 254 that makes it historically relevant. It's a cracker of a test match. So England make 425 after adding 405 for nine on day one. Australia reply with the aforementioned Bradman double 100, but Bill Woodfull uh, making 154, uh, Alan Kipax 83, Bill Ponsford 81. They get to 729 for six before Woodfull pulls the pin on their first innings. But England don't give up. They respond in the third innings, making 375 the second time around, setting Australia 72 to win, which they get late on the fourth day. But all inside four days, all those runs, all those uh, centuries, 
centuries <laughs> and so on. I mean, lucky they extended Ashes Test matches to four days in, in well, beyond three days rather, uh, in 1930. I think I'm right in saying that in 1926, it was only the fifth and final Test match at the Oval, uh, which Wilfred Rhodes uh, won for England, I should add, uh, where they would go five days or unlimited. Maybe it was timeless in the fifth Test, but yeah, before that, it was in the series, it was always these silly three-day Test matches, which would often be drawn for sort of obvious reasons. But Bradman in, in 1930 uh, goes on to make 974 runs at 139. He also makes four tons in the series, uh, as Headley did earlier that year. So Headley's 7.03 is immediately before Bradman's 974, which is quite a beautiful thing. Uh, so Bradman also uh, adds a 334 at Leeds to his 2.54, and I doubt there will be numbers that ever get touched. They are immortalised, and it all started at Lords with 2.54. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Uh, thank you, Deep T, for the 254 that teed him up for that gallop down the straight. Andy Taylor has the next number. That number is $2.94. I know whenever $2.94 comes up, the first thing into uh, Adam's head particularly is Alistair Cook's 294. Mm. But Andy Taylor has said that don't go that way. He, he pre, pre-warned us away from that. He said, I'll give you a steer. It's not run-related and it is quite lateral. So not being particularly lateral thinkers, either of us, we've sat here bashing our heads for quite a while trying to work out what does lateral mean in this context, something that will seem really obvious after you know what it is and not at all obvious when you don't know what it is. That's what lateral means. So have you had any luck with 294 trying to think outside the proverbial box? Well, I did think outside the box and I did find something that could tick the box. I, I went with dates. I thought 29 April, let's use that as our lateral part of the clue so obviously yeah, a lot of cricket is played in April so you know you could take it any which way you want but I was having a conversation last night with one um, Phil Tufnell PCR Tufnell and we just got chatting about uh, his last game with first class cricket and Tuffers is born on the 29th of April 1966 so I thought let's have a look at that so I've looked at his scorecard a few times over the years. Um, Tufnell finishes his test career in 2001 at the Oval, but decides to play one more first-class year for Middlesex, doing the right thing by the club, and so on. And on the final game that he's listed to play in September 2002, Middlesex need to beat Derbyshire to be promoted to the top division. So they're in Division 2. They need to win not long after they right. um, divided up the counties into um, first and second divisions. And uh, in the first innings, it's a low-scoring scrap. It's a crazy old game. You know, the scorecard, wickets falling everywhere. Ashley Nofke takes eight for 24 in the first innings for Middlesex. But nonetheless, <laughs> um, Derbyshire have a, a fairly chaseable target on the final day. And there's Tuffers, 23 overs, 5 for 35 to cap his career. And he was telling me in greater detail last night about this day. And his main recollection was no other fucker wanted to bowl. So it was him bowling from one end all the way through until the job was done. And the great man Tuffers did finish his career on that high note with Middlesex promoted back to the top division, taking 5 for 35. And his birthday was the 29th of the 4th. So that's one option for that. <laughs> I, I was wondering where you're going with that. I'm like, none yeah. of these numbers. No, no, no. I, I did mention before that his birthday was the 29 okay. April yeah, 66. Yeah. I know I went, I went. I went the long way around, but I did get there. The other one, another event on the 29th of April. This is a uh, five years on. Was in uh, the 29th of April uh, 2007 in a in a list day game at the Oval, where Surrey scored the highest list day total of all time. They made 496 for four 
in their 50 overs where Ali Brown predictably was the catalyst for that making 176 from 97 balls if you haven't looked up Ali Brown's career before and looked at some of the highlights I I strongly urge you to do so. But yes, so we've heard about England trying to break the 500 barrier, mostly in the lead up to the World Cup last year. Well, Surrey went very close to doing so. England's 481 against Australia at Nottingham a couple of years ago is in in second position as far as list day is concerned. But Ali Brown also holds the the record for the highest list day personal score, which is back five years before that in, in 2002 against Glamorgan, where he made 268, which remains the the top mark 160 balls 12 sixes it's kind of remarkable that he only played 16 one days and that all happened between 1996 and 2001 imagine a world where a player who had that hitting ability was at sort of at the peak of his powers 10 years later during the IPL he would have been a gazillionaire but um, he falls into that category of players who were brilliant 50 over players but didn't really he did play T20 of course because he didn't retire until 2010 but where he was crazy where he was unbelievable was mm. in that sort of first five or six years of the 2000s and yes he contributed to Surrey having the highest list day score of all time in 2007 on the 29th of the 4th so they're my two lateral tangential uh, links back through so uh, thanks very much to Andy Taylor tell me how wrong I've got it and we'll go again next week thank you Adam uh, Ethan Morgan is the next on our list Captain Morgan was a pirate dude $3.10 is the number that has come through. 310, 310 comes up quite a bit if you're looking at Australian bowlers because Brett Lee took 310 test wickets. Mitchell Johnson squeaked past him just at the end with 313. And that's that's sort of the last, um, the last headland to round if you're a bowler going up the charts as Nathan Lyon has been doing over the last couple of years, you know, before you, you only have the real big names ahead in Dennis Lilly, Glenn McGrath and Shane Warne. You've got to get past that double act of 310, 313. Uh, so there's there's the Brett Lee connection. 310 is also what Australia chased in Johannesburg in 2011, speaking of another Australian fast bowler who mm. may well go past the 310 mark. When Pat Cummins debuted, that famous debut when he was 18 years old, took six for in the second innings to bowl out South Africa, bowling absolute heat, and uh, kept the target just within reach, just just sort of attainable. 310 was the target. They were, what's, eight down, I'm going to say, when when they chased that with Mitchell Johnson and Pat Cummins batting together and putting on... Uh, well, Johnson made 40-odd, I think, in from memory, and, and Cummins was maybe 13 not out at the close and, and hit the winning runs. So that's a 310 that I think has a, a, a pretty... Um, should it should have a, a fondly held place in Australian cricket history anyway, but that's my guess. Yeah, and and you're, you're right about the, the probability that Cummins will go beyond 310 as well, which is quite nice uh, given his first test. It, it was the game where Mitchell Johnson ended up getting turf toe. Remember that? How, I, mm. I, I think it was when he was, broke his toe. Was he batting? He, he was taking a run. Taking he was a run. turning for a second run and he jammed his foot into the ground and broke his toe. Mm. And he, he told me later when I interviewed him that he was his overwhelming... That reaction was relief. He was like, thank God I've broken my toe. I don't have to play for a while. Um, And he got to take some time out of the game. Well, you go a little bit further forward to 2012 when Australia were in England playing a white ball series. Not too dissimilar to the series they're playing at the moment, actually. Sort of outside the Ashes cycle. And um, and he bowled at the Oval. And I remember thinking distinctly that this is the last time I'm going to see Mitchell Johnson bowl. It just didn't look right. Mm. He, you know, was obviously struggling. And as we later learnt, he was struggling emotionally as well. But to think that 
only, what is it, 12 months on from that in the one-day series in 2013. He kind of got his mojo back, went to India. Then we know what happens in the in the 13-14 Ashes, one of the great all-time individual performances. So 310 there with Cummins and Johnson. Uh, we, we've talked about John Edridge's 310 before at Leeds in 1965 against New Zealand. So that's the most fours in any innings. I love this. 54 fours, just five sixes. But a number of players have obviously gone past you know, 310 subsequently, and indeed before that, it wasn't the record, but Saywag is the next best in terms of pure fours struck, 47 fours out of his 254 that we mentioned a little bit earlier, out of that, that, uh, that, that Deepdy uh, had 254, and I suggested that might have been Verinda Saywag, and Lara's world record had 43 fours, and by comparison, Don Bradman struck 46 fours at Leeds in 1930, another innings we talked about a couple of minutes ago. But Terry Alderman was the 310th Australian uh, test cricketer, uh, and I mean, he's another one of these great fast bowlers, tremendous record, especially in England, but I just want to um, note that two on from Alderman is, is Mike Whitney, 312, and he tells the story of playing for Australia how he got his call up, of course, famously playing league cricket at the time and uh, getting the Guernsey to play for the first time here at Old Trafford in 1981 in that crazy series. Magnificently on the Grade Cricketer podcast this week with Ian Higgins and Sam Perry. So they're great mates of ours and I can strongly recommend... I'm sure if you're listening to the final word, you'd be familiar with the Grade Cricketer's work. But that chat with Mike Whitney is a perler. So I, I recommend that you dig it out of their feed and have a listen and he tells you all about how he became Australia's 312th cricketer. So that won't be the number, but... Just a bit of information on the way through. So maybe Brett Lee, maybe it's Pat Cummins, <laughs> maybe it's Terry Alderman, maybe it's John Edrich, Ethan Morgan. Let us know. Let us know, Ethan. $1.58 is the next number. And this number is a double header. And this number comes, so well, it's a special double header. Uh, it comes from David Nathan and it comes from Jesse G. Now, Jesse G had a number on the show just a couple of shows ago and uh, had, had mentioned in a message that, He'd changed his number several times already, um, being so keen to get into the nerd pledge spirit, even though his first number hadn't yet come up. His first number did come up a couple of weeks ago. But then what happens with the double headers? If somebody ahead of you on the list has picked the same number as you, you this is the only way you can jump the list. We, the list is sacrosanct. We do not change the ordering. But you can jump the list if you've got a number that matches uh, another number that's ab- about to come in so that we can do them comprehensively um, and, and do them properly. So Jesse G has managed to, uh, by virtue of picking an edited number of 158 that matched David Nathan's number, has shot up uh, past all the way to the top of the list and, and is two in the space of only a couple of weeks. So that is some cunning work from you, Jesse, to get another gig at Nerd Pledge for your 158. And 158's a great number, great batting number. So, I mean, I suppose most people uh, would link it to Basil de Oliveira's... Uh, 158 at the Oval in uh, 1968, perhaps one of the most important test innings ever played for the broader uh, political context at the time. They might talk about Kevin Peterson's 158 at that very same ground in 2005 to win the greatest Ashes series ever. They might point at Kevin Peterson making 158 two further times as well, including at Adelaide in, in 2006, which I think is his most impressive innings perhaps not as far as the result for England is concerned but the way he batted that day was just unbelievable it's one of the best innings I've ever seen but instead look maybe maybe we 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 can we can link David Nathan or Jesse G to one of those three great innings but instead Jeff I Mm. I want to um, set you up to talk about your nemesis 
we have oh, no. we, we, we've had heroes and villains on the final word over the years and it's not rational the person I'm about to talk about right now <laughs> might have been a lovely chap indeed I suspect he probably was a lovely chap but it doesn't mean he's not a villain in our eyes he's a man who played uh, four <laughs> test matches and averaged 54 oh, no. with the ball he couldn't fucking bat he was dropped after one test in 1938 and yeah, oh. sure, and sure, he averaged 25 with the ball at first class level in the 1930s. But that was when a bunch of fucking octogenarians were playing for Australia at the time. So averaging 25 with the ball as a spinner didn't mean an awful lot. <laughs> of course, it's the man who kept Clary Grimmett out of the Australian team for the 1938 Ashes series. It's Frank Ward. No, Frank Ward. <laughs> My nemesis, Frank Ward. The leg spinner from Sydney who just happened to play at the same club as Don Bradman. The leg spinner who uh, Braddles denied that, that, that he was the influence in getting rid of, I'd say, Australia's greatest ever bowler, Clary Grimmett. Uh, you know, I'm not afraid to make that claim. There may be others with more wickets. None of them were shorter than Clary Grimmett. None of them had less hair than Clary Grimmett. None of them had a weirder bowling action than Clary <laughs> Grimmett. You can actually find a little bit of footage of Clary bowling at leg breaks. Horrible. Uh, and it's it's extraordinary how it, it it's a very sidearm action. It looks like he's sort of hoisting a javelin, not competitively, but maybe just an amateur weekend javelin throw, maybe just maybe just casually lobbing a javelin into a river. Maybe he's stolen a javelin and he needs to get rid of the evidence. You know, he's not going for distance. He's just chucking the javelin down there. And yet somehow that innocuous looking action, that little trot to the wicket, produced test wickets at a faster rate than just about anybody in the history of the game. He, he goes close to six wickets per match, which is one of the highest rates of all time. The first ever to break the 200 test wicket barrier and was cruelly cruelly cast aside in his prime he was probably only 46 or so uh, when he was punted which given that they were picking blokes at 46 it's pretty rude to be excluded on the basis of age i think frank ward might be 40 on that tour would i be right in saying i i feel like he was getting on too so it wasn't as though he was being dropped for a dramatically younger man i think the era i think the the idea of the era was that that spinners really really start to reach their best form in their early 40s. You know, that's where they, like, like the way we talk about Patsman sort of in their late 20s now, you go, that's when they've really discovered their touch. Around 43, 44, that's where they really know where they're going to land the ball every time. <laughs> and, we, so, and usually we celebrate that. Actually, Ward was 32 when he went on that tour in, in yeah, 1938. I didn't think he was that old. Yeah, but the, maybe they should have left him Maybe the plan stands. would have been, well, mm. but the issue there, of course, being that when he would have been hitting his prime, there was a little thing called the Second World War, which would have prevented him yeah. Yeah. But post-war, yeah. um, you know, old spinners were still in fashion there. You only have to go as far forward as the 1950-51 Ashes series where Jack Iverson played test cricket after really not discovering the game seriously until after the war and started off playing for the Brighton Thirds and made his way through grade cricket, prolific mystery spinner, which obviously Gideon Haig wrote perhaps one of the all-time greatest cricket books, going back and telling his remarkable story. So it wouldn't have precluded Ward to have played after the war when he may have been hitting his prime based on what we've learned mm. in recent weeks on Storytime, Jeff.
maybe the idea was at as at 32 they were blooding the youngster you know just get him around the group Mitchell Swepson style you know just just, <laughs> just let him let him adjust to, to the pace of the game uh, take him on a tour and and then maybe the second world war got in the way although I would have thought if you had a lot of spinners available they'd be very good at lobbing grenades mm. um, around that era they'd land them with unfailing accuracy <laughs> in the trenches of the Hun but but nonetheless look at no, it's December 1936 when Frank Frank Ward debuts disgracefully in place of Clary at Brisbane, played three tests in that 36-37 series. Now, that's the one where Australia go 2-0 down. Mm. Bradman produces the masterpiece of 270 at Melbourne to turn it around and they come back and and win 3-2. What did Frank Ward contribute to that turnaround win? Nothing. Nothing. (laughs) Absolutely nothing. Guess what? He played in the two games they lost, got Enhanced, got thrashed. He played in Melbourne, the miracle game. Didn't bowl in the first innings when they bowled England out for they had England declare at nine down for about four runs. Didn't bowl. Bowled in the second innings. Did bugger all. Took one for 60. Didn't matter. Wasn't necessary. Stan McCabe just about bowled more than Frank Ward did in that match. Got dropped because he was no good. And then still got taken to England in place of Clary. Played one test. Played the first test at Nottingham. None for 142, if you don't mind, and got punted for the rest of the tour because he was no bloody good. Where Clary would have done something and would have stopped England making 600. England made four centuries. Four England batsmen made centuries in that one innings that he bowled in in Nottingham and he could do nothing to stop them. Clary would have stopped them. You can bet that Clary would have stopped them. And that didn't happen. And he never played again. And Brattles had the audacity to say that Frank Ward had had a successful tour because he had a good average from the tour matches. (laughs) Piss off. He's not there for the tour matches. He's not there for a holiday. He's not there to get around the boys. He was there to play test cricket and he didn't and he kept someone else else out. Hopeless. Frank Ward. End of story. The 158th man to play test cricket for Australia is Frank Ward. Yeah, exactly. The Duke of Norfolk's 11 playing at fucking Arundel to start. Doesn't matter what he did there. (laughs) Matters what he did at Nottingham. When we do make final word merch again, and look, to be fair, we have promised this a few times and we have been fucking useless on this front. But when we produce final word merch again, there will be a Justice for Clary 1938 t-shirt and we will wear it with pride to press boxes around the world, Jeff. I promise you that. <laughs> 158, David, Nathan and Jesse G, thank you so much. Next up, Alex KP, $1.14. Over to you, Jeff. Uh, 114, Alex KP, which may be Kevin Peterson in disguise. I don't know, but we've already talked about him and him batting well, so I, I don't think you'd need any further pushing. Uh, 114. 114 is another score that I watched and that you watched, Adam, Mm. and that we both enjoyed watching very much. 114 was what Fakhar Zaman, the Pakistan opener, made in the Champions Trophy final. A rather lovely moment after, you may be aware of Pakistan's unfortunate history against India in World Cups where they uh, haven't beaten them probably ever certainly any time that it mattered uh, they've they've lost the the group games for years and years and years and and so this wasn't quite the same thing but it was an ICC tournament and it was in a final 
And it was one of the most audacious, ridiculous innings. I won't say it was a quality innings because it involved a lot of dragging balls from outside off stump across to the league side. And it, it was agricultural. It rode its luck, but it did its job. And it got Pakistan that win, that Champions Trophy win that got Safraz Ahmed into the white jacket holding the trophy. And you can't ask for anything more than that. When you've got Safraz Ahmed in a white dinner jacket, something has gone right with the world. I'm going to write a a column about this soon. I, I wrote a piece for tomorrow's cricket paper, which relates to how we can fix T20 International bilateral series, how we can kind of help put it on the same course that one day cricket's on now and more tri-series and, and so on. But um, I'm going to argue that in the absence of the Champions Trophy, that we need to bring the white jacket back for the T20 World Cup. So if you win the T20 World Cup, mm-hmm. you get to wear the jacket that Shane Watson wore twice when he won the Champions Trophy, the Champs Trophy, on two occasions. And <laughs> Fakazam, and yes, we were that that, that day in the uh, in that little spillover section of the press box, and, and he's always been a favour of ours, really. Even when he first started in Australia earlier that year, the way that he plays, the he's a, he's a lovely bloke too. I've interviewed him a couple of times, and I'm uh, I'm, I'm glad that we get to talk about him today. Uh, One fourteen also relates to George Headley to go full circle back to the start of the show. One of those four hundreds was one hundred and fourteen. It was the third Test match where he goes on to make twin tons. Uh, so Headley, uh, four centuries, and that must have been the second, I think, I'd be right in saying, was 114. Damien Martin, we talked about his century at Nagpur last week on Storytime. That was 114. But I'm going to take us back to the Caribbean for my last suggestion because it reminded me of a, um, well, before we had Nerd Pledge, just when the podcast started, actually, back in 2015, this was a trivia question put to me that's thoroughly in keeping with the spirit of Nerd Pledge. And the trivia question was, who is the player who, before Jacques Cullis, this is, Jacques Cullis ruined everything, but had a test ton, a one-day ton, a test fifer, 100 test catches, 100 ODI catches, 100 test wickets, and 100 ODI wickets. There's only one person who's done that. Well, he did it before Jacques Cullis, and that was none other mm. than Carl Hooper. I know you know the answer, Jeff, so I won't build the suspense, but Carl Hooper did get 100 wickets in Test cricket, 114 to be precise. So I thought that was a good enough link to bring it up on Nerd Pledge today. Almost certainly not what the answer is, but a good bit of trivia at the pub one night if you want to rattle that off and see how you go with your mates. So I'd be grateful. Well, the the key thing about that was that for a very long time, Callis had never made a double hundred, and so everybody would guess Callis, and they'd be almost right, but he didn't have a double ton. Mm. But then he did, and then he ruined it. Anyway, that's the end of the new numbers for this particular show. There will be new numbers coming. If you're on the list, please be patient. We have quite a few numbers to get through, but we are doing our level best to investigate everyone with the forensic vigour of many television detectives. If you'd like to send a number through and become part of the fun, you just go to patreon.com slash the final word sign up. You can set your number. You can set your frequency. uh, You can set yourself for the challenge and we will do the same and you can help keep the show going. Let's revisit some of the numbers we may not have got right because we're not perfect. We've never claimed to be. Sometimes we don't know. Sometimes we guess. Uh, Sometimes we're wrong. Uh, Jeff Moritz, his number $2.22, I didn't so much guess at last week as just say 222, I love that. How good's 222? Because that's the Richie Benno number. But Jeff did send through a hint and his hint was knuckleball. And that led me to Andrew Ty. AJ Ty is the 222nd player to play one day internationals for Australia and is famous 
not princi- maybe not principally, but quite close to principally for bowling a very good knuckleball, which is a slower delivery that is perfectly disguised in his bowling action so that the uh, batsman facing it does not know that it's a slower ball and that's 2-2-2. Two, two, two. I hope we'll see that knuckleball at some point in the one-day series, but I suspect it's going to be six games on tour where he's not actually got a start, unfortunately, for AJ Ty, but at least he's back in the national tracksuit after a couple of years away. A, a revisit here from Peter Hickey, who, who sent through $2.09. I think last week we talked about the fact that Mark Waugh batted 209 times for Australia, possibly. I know VVS. I think you talked about this with Daniel Norcross. I did, that's right. Mark Waugh having batted 209 times for Australia in Test cricket. There was a VVS Laxman link as well. Ricky Ponting, of course, made 209, which we've talked about in the past. As did Karen Rolton. Uh, Her 209 not out was the world record for some time. She made that at Leeds in 2001 in a women's test. And Chris Rogers, I neglected to mention when we were going through that two weeks ago, we've had a number of Chris Rogers first-class scores come up on the final word in recent weeks. So, um, <laughs> this will be a third one I, in I have two to, shows. I, yeah, I, I have to say that he made 209 against the touring Australians for Leicestershire in 2005, a match I was at, actually. I wasn't there for Rogers' innings because I was playing cricket on the Saturday, but I did sit there and watch Stuart Broad bowl against the Australians for the first time before Broad, of course, uh, played for England and indeed before he made the move to Nottinghamshire. So I do remember that very fondly. Uh, where Rogers, a number of times where Australian players did well against Australia over the years. I know Mark Waugh made a ton uh, for Essex against Australia back in 89 when he thought he should be on the tour and he, it was a real up yours moment for him individually as I'm sure it was for Rogers. All of which is good and a Chris Rogers first class ton is always welcome on this segment. Uh, Peter Hickey did send through a clue though which is that he'd been walking around Melbourne listening to the podcast probably not more than five kilometres from his home and that those players you'd mentioned Ponting, VVS Laxman and Steve Waugh was another one were uh, were favourite characters of of his childhood when he was growing up and he said perhaps my hometown and the clues about the era when I grew up watching cricket will help narrow down why the player this number is connected Mm. to jumped out at me and the short answer to this is NFI we currently have no idea (laughs) what this refers to so if you think you know um, I mean I've done a fair bit of digging around uh, things related to Melbourne and MCG games and so on. But I can't turn up the 209 link at the moment. If you Mm. think you can, uh, drop us a message on the patron DMs or any other method you can find to get in touch uh, and see what you think. Yeah, and we always like doing that at least once on Storytime. Throw one back uh, into the water, throw one fish back and and see if you can catch it as well. And on this occasion, it's, uh, it's 209. Like you, Jeff, I had a... Had to play around with this for about half an hour and couldn't get anywhere near it. So, Peter, either come back with another clue or uh, if you're listening and you have found it where Jeff and I have failed, as Jeff says, drop us a DM. History of Netherlands, who are great pals of ours on the DMs and on Twitter and so on. Uh, we deduced that their number actually was 116, what, not 117 after all that. The, the, the clue was that this goes back to a favourite year of mine and a performance uh, that we have talked about on the show recently and we are able to narrow that down a little bit. I was thinking 93, it might have been a link back to the greatest season it was, but the second season of the greatest season it was was about 1999 and in 1999, that's when Sachin Tendulkar was man of the match in a losing cause at the MCG uh, thanks to his 116 in the first innings when it was carnage down the other end courtesy of Brett Lee, which is why we were talking about this game a few weeks ago. Sachin held his nerve and finished with 116 before getting out to Damien Fleming late in the day of memory serves me correctly but I'm pretty sure 
that is what it is going to be. So thanks to the History of Netherlands podcast for their 116. And their, their 117 will come later because the, the 116 was an initial pledge, the 117 ah. was an edit, which has nothing <laughs> to do with it. Um, but So we will come back to the 117 again. That is the History of the Netherlands podcast, which is out there in podcast land as well. Uh, Evan Willis had a clue as well for a number we didn't get. The, the number was $3.83. We, we had a few different goes at this at the 383 mm. evan said a, a further clue was that naturally as a victorian he subscribes to the theory that worthy victorians have been shafted in test team selection now evan as a queenslander i can say bullshit <laughs> too many victorians we've had too many victorians in the test team <laughs> please remove three dear sir there are too many victorians in the test team please eliminate three so I was looking at something that supported the idea that not enough Victorians got picked was that Matthew Elliott was cap number 368 and Brad Hodge was cap number 394. And in the interim between those gaps, there were no Victorians who debuted for for Australia. It's, it's a fairly long gap Shame. to go just, just shock full of, of New South Wales players. But that doesn't relate to 383. What does relate to 383 is this... In 2004, against a very good New South Wales team involving Mark Waugh, Steve Waugh, Brad Haddon, uh, Simon Katic, Phil Jakes and Stuart McGill, among others, Victoria was set 455 to win. You can't chase 455 in the last innings. It can't be done. At one point, when Andrew McDonald got out for a third ball duck, the score was six for 383. There's that number again, 383. From that point, only one more wicket went down as David Hussey steered the Victorians home, got them to their 455 target with an unbeaten double century. And David Hussey is certainly a player who could and would and perhaps should have played Test cricket for Australia uh, at in most other areas, but didn't get a go this time around. A worthy Victorian-ish, Western Australian relocated, but, you know, let's not dwell on that too much. Who was shafted in test team selection? That's your clue answered, Evan Willis. I'm confident, let me know. Yeah, he's Victorian enough for me for feeling aggrieved about test selection, that's for sure. We thought he was Victorian in 2004 when we were certain he should be going on tours and so forth, but that's a belter. Uh, well done. Well worked out, Jeff. That was hard yakka. Good job. Thanks, Evan Willis. Uh, and the last revisit we have today, Jeff, is... This is Michael Fitzner, and this is one that is maybe I screwed up because I, I think he... I think Michael Fitzner initially put in a two a two dollars forty eight and then changed it to a one eighty nine, and I went with the two forty eight when we went on the show. Now I've noticed this myself. Michael hasn't been in touch, but you know we're we're all about transparency and honesty with our mistakes on the final word. So the number I think was supposed to be one eighty nine, and there was a link, a hint that it may have something to do with South Australia mm -hmm. that Michael Fitzner was potentially a keen South Australian. So I looked into this and there are there are two very interesting connections to 189. And if you're listening to this deep in the show, then you'll you'll still want to hear this. This is good. All right. In 1994-95, South Australia win the Sheffield Shield. Now, this doesn't happen very often. Um, remember Ian Chappell when we spoke to him being, uh, having that as a real prominent thing in his career that he really wanted to to lead South Australia to a Shield win. It was a big deal in that part of the world. 
South Australia were were playing the Shield title against WA. South Australia were on top, so they only needed to draw. But that was a, a game where Adam Gilchrist announced himself. He made 189 not out. There's that link to Michael's number. Got WA past 500 in the first innings, but South Australia needed the draw. So on the last day... They were well out of the game in terms of runs, but they were just hanging on <laughs> for grim death. Jamie Siddons made four from 134 balls <laughs> at one point, but wickets kept falling until they got down to the final pair. They had Shane George and Peter McIntyre with 10 overs to survive at the end, and they hung on to draw by one wicket and claim the title, despite the 189 from Adam Gilchrist. This is a great YouTube clip to find. So we, mm-hmm. we talked to Jason Gillespie about this, actually, in our live show in Adelaide last year, but the local Channel 9 sort of commentary team were down there uh, doing the final match, of course, because they were hosting it and watching Peter McIntyre face out that last over and the celebrations as the, the crowd swamp the ground after that final ball. I think it's Brendan Julian bowling the last over uh, and you know it's dragged out over several minutes and and then the the response in the dressing rooms is outstanding Daniel Brady's written about this a number of times when Adelaide was hosting the Sheffield Shield final I think three seasons ago down at Glenelg he did a retrospective and spoke to a bunch of the players that have been there in 94-95 but yes uh, that's perfect really isn't it with Adelaide Gilchrist 189 and a famous Sheffield Shield win for the Sackers uh, and yeah Peter McIntyre who had such a remarkable summer when you consider it was 94-95 when he ended up in the test team at Adelaide no more than a month or so before that final Uh, of course he'd played for Australia A he'd had such a prominent opportunity to play on television and all the rest of it which announced himself there too and Shane George who also played for Australia A so it was the two of them at the end having those 10 overs to get through and SA hang on and and they they look back at that fondly as one of their finest and proudest moments. There is also, however, another option for 189, another extraordinary game and this this (laughs) ties together beautifully a number of things we've been talking about today. A number of characters who have come up through the show. For this, we have to go all the way back to 1927. Diddly-doo, 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 flashback music. New South Wales playing South Australia. New South Wales made 519. That was on the back of a big hundred by Alan Kipax, who Adam mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. It also involved a young Donald Bradman oh, making a ton. Don Bradman. Making a ton, batting at number seven, just as he did in that Melbourne Test match mm. in 1937. Didn't bat at number seven often, but there was a night watchman and the youngster was listed at six. So, Bradman makes a ton at seven. Kipax made 140-ish. They got New South Wales past 500. South Australia got close in the reply by making 481, got within touching distance, and then bowled out New South Wales for 150. And guess who took the wickets? Clary Grimmett with 8 for 57. Yeah. 8 for 57. Where did Frank Ward ever take 8 for 57? Never. Stuff that up, you jump at Don Bradman. Uh, guess who he got out in that second innings? Don Bradman. Guess who was probably still pissed about it 10 years later? <laughs> Don Bradman. 8 for 57, Clary Grimmett took. That meant that South Australia had to get 189. They were very much the weaker side. New South Wales still f- fancied bowling them out. They nearly did. But guess who got there? To 189, South Australia, nine wickets down. They won by one wicket, chasing 189. So Michael Fitzner, two versions of 189 that relate to wonderful moments in South Australian cricket history for you. I need to know how you found that. 
Like that's not an easy get. In terms of how we search for no. stuff, how did you? Um, I'm assuming Cricket Archive was involved. Uh, it involved looking at score. Yeah, like team scores mm. of 189 that South Australia had made historically. <laughs> Which is not something there's an automated process. No, that, that's, I can assure you, that's not as easy as using StatsGuru uh, because that doesn't include first class numbers. So you've done, done the yards again. Beautiful stuff, yeah. Jeff. That was a fun round, wasn't it? Lots of good, good numbers, good stories, lots of brabbing back and forth. Clary Grimmett, yeah. George Headley. Can't ask for much more than that. I'll, I'll fight you, Bradman. I'll fight you. Like, just, just, just show up. Just turn up any, any time, any place. You name it, I'll be there. Um, this has been story time. Uh, as we said, if you'd like to play Nerd Pledge, patron.com slash the final word. If you'd like to just keep listening into story time, please do, because we are having a lot of fun doing it. And uh, we know that the nerdier among you are having a lot of fun listening to it. For now, let's take a, a Brief momentary breath in while the interstitial music plays and then we'll be back with our interview from last year with the universe Joss, Joss Bumper. Jeff, while we break, we talked on the weekly show uh, this week about Night Watchman's special Australian edition, which is now on the digital shelves. Night Watchman have been working with us here on The Final Word for a couple of years now. It is some of the mm. best cricket writing in the world. And one of their objectives when they started making the publication back in 2013 was for it to be uh, have a global footprint. They didn't just want it to be about sort of English cricketers and English writing and so on. So uh, they always have encouraged uh, writers like you and me and others to get our hands dirty and, 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 and submit pieces and so on. On and they've received so many excellent pieces now that they've got enough to put out this Aussie edition and you are able to receive a, a generous discount, a 10% discount, by popping in an offer code which comes from listening to the show. It's a very reasonable price to begin with as well anyway. It's five quid at normal prices. So, you know, if you can get 10% off that, if you were a keen bargain hunter, you can do that. The collection is, it's not just by Australian writers, mm. it's, it's by any writers on subjects relating to Australian cricket. Many subjects are featured. Guess which subject is not featured? Frank Ward doesn't get a Guernsey because not really relevant. But Didn't this is the point, much. though, isn't it? Isn't this Didn't the point? If, 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 the thing is, if you said to the editor, the editors at the Night Watchman and the editorial team that you wanted to write 5,000 words about the injustice of the 1938 Ashes selection policy and Ward getting selected mm. ahead of Grimmett, you'd be encouraged to do so. So oh, yeah. in this edition here, you've got Jonathan Liu, one of the best sports writers on the planet, former guest on The Final Word, who was encouraged to write a 3,000-word essay imagining what the world would be like if the Shane Warne mural actually came true. And he did it in the form of a time machine, and it is fucking brilliant. So pick that up in this. as Christian Ryan, who's perhaps, well, I think he's my favourite cricket writer. A number of people would agree. He's in there with a couple of pieces. Matthew Engel, former editor of Wisdom. Lawrence Booth, the current editor of Wisdom. There is so much stuff in there. Jeff, you've written about David Warner. I've written about Jim Maxwell. I can't wait to read this. I mean, I've read each of the Night Watchmen's as they've been released, but kind of revisiting this uh, a couple of years later in, in the case of Jonathan Lewis piece, for example, has brought me a lot of joy in recent days. It is not only the, the one of the better bits of writing you'll read full stop, but I've never read a funnier cricket piece. So on that alone, mm -hmm. it's worth the 450, which is what it'll cost you with offer code TFW10 by simply going to the Night Watchman website, 
bit.ly forward slash NW Aussie. Pretty straightforward. It's in the show notes. You don't need to remember it, but bit.ly uh, forward slash NW Aussie. Offer code is TFW10. Get yourself 10% off. Good people, good things, fantastic writing, a brilliant publication, and they're now making their Australian special. So get hold of it straight away. Hi, I'm Natalie Jamonis, and you're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. This is The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Today, we are thrilled to welcome a man who's played 234 times for England, where he currently serves as vice-captain and white ball wicketkeeper. In international level, he boasts some remarkable numbers. To pick but a couple before we get into it, he has seven one-day hundreds under 75 balls, including two, the two fastest ever for England. One of those was in 46 deliveries. He's amongst the most exciting cricketers in the world. Of course, it's none other than Kookaburra's own Joss Butler. Thanks so much for joining The Final Word. Great to be here, thank you. He's just like um, politely blushing at this point because he's saying nice things about him. Oh, don't mean that wasn't all that much. No, it was fine. Uh, to start, we, uh, the last cricketer we had on the show a few weeks ago was Glenn Maxwell, another member of, of the Kookaburra family. And uh, it wasn't long after you made a silly hundred in the West Indies earlier in the year, I can't remember how many balls, probably about 14 balls or something like that, that Kookaburra merged your two faces on their social media platforms and, uh, and, and you get compared a lot. I mean, is that... Um, so it's appropriate that we're talking to you, but do you sort of feel as though you and Glenn have a lot in common? Uh, to an extent, I guess. I think, um, you know, from watching him bat, I think we, you know, we look to both try and take the game on and, and be aggressive. I think we both um, enjoy trying to um, invent shots as well at yeah. times. I think he, uh, I watch him bat and I think he's quite an inventive player. I think he's, he's quite a unique player. Um, I think he's very much has his own style I think uh, of the way he sees the game and the way he plays the game and I think I do too I think I have my own sort of as we all do uh, intricacies but especially I think the two of us like to try and hit the ball hard and, and try some different shots he just made the 100 in the T20 in India and won a game there and, and Joss was the 150 off 70 balls or whatever it was oh and that it, it, came, <laughs> it came together we decided the portmanteau player is Gloss Batwell <laughs> if we put the two of you together which is it's the perfect batsman's name yeah a great name the surname goes well doesn't it especially so, um, but uh, yeah, I think any time that you, you have those performances, I think what's you know for me as a fan of the game, as a, unfortunately he's an Australian, but when he's on fire, he's, he's good to watch. But you are teammates this year. Technically, you, you, I mean, I know you won't play a lot for Lancashire, nor will he um, through the next part of the summer. Of course, in the middle of the World Cup campaign, but the thought has crossed our minds, and it might have yours as well. What if you two walk out to bat together in a T20 at Old Trafford during the blast? That'd be that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, it would. Yeah, it'd be great fun. Um, you know, obviously, as a as a signing for Lancashire, is you know ticks all the boxes, doesn't he? He's um, dynamite with the bat. Is a, a great athlete in the field, or you know, create a wicket in the field somehow, and and can bowl some handy off spin. So, as an overseas signing, is is brilliant for for Lancashire. Um, I know the club's really excited to uh, to get him back. He played a few games earlier in the season as well in in the one day stuff and and some Champo games. So, yeah, if I get the chance to to bat with him at, at Old Trafford, and um, that'd be great. To go backwards, we'll go back to the very start, shall we? So um, your engagement with the sport. Uh, I know you played tons of sports. That always gets brought up and how it influences your batting. And we'll try not to go too much into that because I think it's been kind of done to death to an extent. But your first memories of playing and picking up a bat and, and watching the sport? Uh, first memories really are sort of just playing on the patio and in the garden at home. Um, I have an um, older brother and sister, so I'd go along and watch my brother playing cricket um, and play on the side of the, the pitch and, and want to be that annoying younger brother who wants to play with yep. his older brother's mates and, and you know you, you can bat last or you can just field and I was very happy with that um, so uh, but yeah I think they're my really early memories that we me and my brother played a lot in the garden and on the patio like sort of making up our own games or pretending to be 
Wako Yunus or whoever it was and um, yeah, I think in early memories as well of the 99 World Cup especially mm. uh, good memories for me I, I went and watched quite a few games um, so it was at that semi-final the great South Africa and Australia oh, game wow. so I was, uh, you know, they're really great memories from my early cricketing days Were you also at the game at Taunton where India made 380 odd? <laughs> yeah I was yeah um, I remember actually I was for some reason I was saying to mum and dad I didn't want to go I was, oh, we can watch it on the TV and then obviously very glad that they did <laughs> take me along um, but I just remember the crowd was the you know, first thing I noticed you know how loud and passionate the fans were and then we were sat actually that river end and Ganguly just kept smashing them over our heads into the river it was brilliant to watch that was an inspiration for you because you've put a lot of balls into the river uh, particularly in Cardiff you seem to <laughs> the cameraman on the gantry up there only a few matches have been in danger from you have you got a set against anyone up there <laughs> I think that Cardiff they almost got the pitched the wrong way around don't they it's so short straight and, yeah. and miles square so uh, yeah it's the the obvious place to to try and hit it um th- that stand isn't very big so it makes them look like big sixes out into the river i love that wacko Eunice was the if you had to pick the influence who was joss's childhood influence who was he impersonating on the balcony wacko Eunice wouldn't have been first to mind <laughs> yeah i just remember those sort of toe crushing yorkers i was had to bowl as well my brother would always want to bat so i'd have to bowl and i remember just thinking oh whether it Pakistan were touring England at the time I'm not sure but I just remember clearly that images of Wazi Makram and Waka Yunus bowling awesome Yorkers and thinking that's pretty cool that's how I'll try and get my brother out Another question to go back even further again really a lot of Australian listeners to this might think why Joss because on your Crick Info page it'll say Joseph and might that have to do with the fact that your sister's called Joe and you became Joss as a consequence something like that? Uh, no, I, well I thought that might be the case but that would obviously be even poorer planning for my parents but they <laughs> they um they actually wanted to call me joss um, right. that was the ne- but they wanted me to have a longer name uh, as a as a um yeah birth certificate or whatever it was so yeah joseph was the, the name but yeah they always had, had decided on joss it's kind of funny that you and joe root are both joseph but neither of you go by joseph on the cricket field <laughs> yeah uh whatever yeah, not too many guys go around with obviously it's joe isn't it yeah, so I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm a bit of a anomaly and uh, not too many josses there aren't a lot of josephs getting about <laughs> no that's true as well jo- joseph true. burns doesn't usually open for australia <laughs> alzari joseph maybe if you yeah, go for a yeah, last yeah, name the way around, yeah. uh 2005 ashes um is a is a point in time that so many of your now teammates and guys you spend a lot of time with uh, talk about as a moment which was hugely inspirational for them getting the chance to watch an amazing series what are your memories of I guess either attending or, or watching that incredible test series yeah amazing memories of that that is the best test series there has ever been and, and I think ever will be I don't see how it can be especially in our country you know it was on terrestrial tv I really remember the images of Old Trafford I think it was with thousands of people queuing outside no, no tickets but just you know, it was unbelievable to think this is cricket this is what's um you know the great australian side it was a you know it was really was a who's who of of amazing cricketers from australia and, and for england to take them on and and win um was awesome i you know clear memories of you know, me playing cricket at days and people will be have the radio on at the side of the game or you know so and so's got a wicket or harmson's bowling well again and you know Triscothic's off to a fly all these you know great memories watching that edgebaston game just could not believe how you know that, that ending is just unbelievable so i think throughout that series there were just so many moments that always that involved sort of some great great players which i think you really remember them for even more and um you know someone like flintoff and and peterson were just two really inspiring guys for for young cricketers to watch you know the way they took on the australians 
and then for you, you know, you end up playing with some of these characters, Triscothic, I imagine. Um, it, it must have been bizarre, really, suddenly being in that position where they're real people on a cricket field with you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Marcus sharing a dressing room with him at Somerset is, you know, suddenly this is just unbelievable. And I remember we, like, I used to go and watch and he was the, the centrally contracted player from England who, you know, would come back and play for us once a year and you'd see his car arrive and it'd be like, oh my God, he's, he's actually at Taunton. And, and then, yeah, you share the dressing room with him and, and just, you know, he loves cricket more than I've met anyone who loves cricket and, and just a normal guy and just wants to bat and, and play and have... So, so and I really remember my first time I went into the England dressing room so there was Swan, Peterson, Broad, um, these guys who you, you sort of build them up to be this, you know, not human, you sort of yeah. dehumanise them. They're characters. You, exactly, yeah. And uh, and then you meet them and you just have normal conversations and it's really refreshing to think these guys are just normal blokes who are just exceptionally good at cricket. The time you spent as a, I guess, a school prodigy really, wasn't it? You were the Wisdom School's cricketer in 2010 making any number of hundreds at King's School and that's interesting to me because you start developing these relationships with players in the west of England sides like Liam Dawson, James Vince and others. Um, obviously, you would have played a lot with Jack Leach then. We'll come back to that in a moment with Jack specifically. But was that group of players coming through together who have obviously all gone on to represent England, were you close immediately being the best players in the side? Did you socialise a lot and that kind of thing? Yeah, we did. And I think also in the youth cricket, there was quite a lot of festivals throughout the summer. So like they'd go to Kings, my school would host it and teams would come from wherever and, and everyone would stay on the site for a week so you got to know some of the yeah. guys through that as well and then obviously the representative sides and yeah you sort of form these friendships and you just keep bumping into guys you know, you'd play against them each the summer and, and then share dressing rooms and and um, yeah I think got to know guys really well and I think that's one of the, the best things about our dressing room now is there's lots of those relationships with guys who've played a lot of cricket together growing up as I'm sure there are in, in lots of other dressing rooms as well but you know you sort of <clears throat> can escape the the pressures of oh my, we're playing for England whereas you sort of look around and you you sort of might be talking about an under 15s fixture that you were on and you sort of yeah really allows you to sort of feel relaxed and you lose that sort of sense of quite where you are because you're just with your mates playing cricket it feels a bit like that's a huge driver behind the success I mean I mentioned Jack Leach before but uh, when you were playing in a test match together last year and uh, um, uh, caught Butler bold Leach, you two couldn't have been more excited. It was like a really lovely kind of touching moment. I mean, to imagine that you two would be on the test field together and, and being involved in a wicket. Yeah, absolutely. You know, m- myself and Jack started playing cricket together sort of nine, ten years old and, and we always just, you know, 2005 Ashes that was a box that we'd always watch being like imagine God imagine if we ever did this and stuff and then to you know to play together and sort of you do realise those sort of dreams and it is very very special to and I think when you have those sort of relationships with guys and you're great mates with someone it's when you see them doing so well and and as Jack did in Sri Lanka it's just awesome to see as a mate to see how well your your mate is doing and you're on this sharing it on the same field there's a particular joy in sharing something you know your your own success is might might even feel self-indulgent sort of celebrating yourself but seeing someone you care about uh, it's a lot more special most of the time yeah absolutely um and you and because you know these guys so well you know how hard they've worked for they know you know you know the tough moments they've had to go through to so you sort of know their story and whereas if you don't know them so well you just assume that they've sailed through and and become an international cricketer and yeah when you share those things with with a mate it's brilliant 
we had a chat to Vic Marks earlier, um, you know, the, the mayor of Somerset, and he <laughs> he told us about Dennis Brakewell, who was a, a mentor of yours. Um, Vic had asked him, you know, do you still get nervous watching Joss Bad? And he said, oh, no, 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 I don't. I don't watch it live. I watch it later. <laughs> it went one, once I know what's already happened. If he knows you're going to get the 100, then he'll sit back and watch the tape. So it's quite a nice little story. Yeah, Dennis is a, a great man. I think he had a big influence on, on Michael. Obviously, meeting him at, at Kings. Uh, he was the groundsman. He was the. You know, he obviously played for Somerset with. Um, you know, he used to live with um, Viv Richards and Ian Botham as well. So, incredible mm. story. So <laughs> yeah, so, and, and I don't think he lacked sort of the same mindset as they had as well so um no i think yeah so awesome stories that you know hearings that he played in those sort of glory years with somerset as well so i was sort of really drawn to him and and just a great personality for for life um as much as cricket as well he's a, a great guy and always so accommodating for any cricket stuff and and uh yeah so he's always a a guy i like to you know try and catch up with when i'm back jumping forward to when you start representing England for the first time, the, the under-19s tour, that, that sort of quartet of you, Joe Root, Ben Stokes, James Vince, you're all in the, you know, in the World Cup side right now. It's kind of cool that, again, tapping into Jeff's point, you can sort of share in that experience together, that closeness of the bond. But uh, one theme from back then was that you suffered from homesickness and you found it hard to be away from home as a younger lad, but now, of course, you, you, you know, you're a globetrotter all, all around the world. What made it hard for you to be away from home as a younger fella? Um, I think just that it was new, you know, I think I, everything was very easy at home. I think, um, you know, I lived in some, I, I boarded at school as well, but right. no, my parents were only sort of 40 minutes away, so you knew that you'd go home at weekends or whatever. So um, I sort of, I'd go through times where you know, I think oh, I'd like to be at home or whatever. But uh, I think then you sort of, once you get over the, you know, um, sort of initial comfort side of it and then you start to see the opportunity as well you know, sort yeah. of um, travelling to great places meeting new people having some awesome experiences as I have done especially over the last few years to sort of go and meet incredible people and play in you know, different environments and I think that's one of the best challenges of, of cricket is can you travel and play and perform in, in different situations in different um, conditions um, I think that's what all the best players are, are seem capable to do whatever the conditions or the opposition or the wicket and um, they seem to be able to perform and, and to be able to travel the world now and and have that as a you know the v- playing cricket is the vehicle to do that is yeah. is really fortunate you know when you talk to your mates and and they um talk about you know that how much they'd love to travel with their job if they could and and you suddenly think yeah oh, guys i'm quite lucky to do that of course there's times where it's long and it's a bit longer than you might hope but um yeah, yeah. being able to travel the world and see is, is amazing. There are the times, I suppose, when you're not getting to actually make the most of that travel, you know, when, when the schedule's frantic and you're just going, hopping from city to city to play and play and play and you can't actually engage with the place you're in. You know it's out there, but it's kind of, it's, it's still as far away as it would be if you were in London. Yeah, there is certainly times like that. Um, you know, you come back and your mates are like, oh, what's uh, Mumbai like? And you're like, well, I sort of don't really know. <laughs> I went to the hotel and then I got on a bus to the game and then we flew out. So yeah, I can tell you where to charge your phone in the airport. Yeah, but exactly. That's about but, uh, so I think that's why it's really important um, when you do get the chance to, to try and experience it if you can um, and try and see things. I like to be able to say I've been to somewhere or seen something. And, and so when you do get the chance, I think, and as well, that's one of the great things of the IPL. You're then sharing a dressing room with local guys who can say oh you know you should try this place you know in which you would never 
know about if you weren't didn't have that local knowledge or whatever so i think when you do get the opportunity to it's, it's very important to try and enjoy what that country or city has to offer the closeness of your dressing room um is perhaps best embodied by the close friendship of mo and ali and adil rashid there's been reports that you're kind of part of their crew you're part of their and it, it includes the three of you playing a lot of chess together is, is that something that you guys come together and do uh, often or is put, that a more in Sri Lanka um, yep. we had that one day tour and it just seemed to rain the whole time <laughs> and um, yeah weirdly I, I can't think how we got onto chess but that to say that I think it was actually because Mo's a Liverpool fan and apparently Trent Alexander-Arnold who's the right back there is, is brilliant at chess and we were sort of talking about like didn't expect a footballer to be awesome at chess and he was saying uh, Chahal apparently is a great chess player at Bangalore so that's how I think the conversation came and then he said oh I played a lot of chess at school and you think we're like Mo you you didn't play surely you didn't play chess (laughs) and it gets raining loads and the liaison we said oh I wonder if he could find us a chess board and he came back with one and yeah, we just started playing in Sri Lanka, and, and yeah, Mo is very good. So, and, uh, and, and your three of you are pretty good mates. Like the three of you, are, you, you know, spend a lot of time together and socialise and whatnot. Yeah, they certainly spend more time together. They right. let, let me in sometimes. Okay. Um, but uh, <laughs> no, I do enjoy spending time with with them. Um, I think Mo is he's one of the funniest guys I've ever shared a dressing room with. He's great fun <laughs> to be around. Um, the two of them always come up with you know some sort of statement or word that you've you know just making stuff up. <laughs> so, so yeah, great guys to spend time with. You can do a great cricket-themed chess kit as well. Though. You've got Ian Bishop, you've got Heather Knight, you've got Shane Porn, I guess. <laughs> Perhaps I might just ch- press fast-forward quite a long way. We're going to skip over the first uh, first uh, stanza in the test side and your return to white ball cricket and doing so well in the IPL a couple of years ago to your return, the 2018 year, the year where it all comes together for you. Here at Lords, where we're recording today, you're back in the test team. Um, it leads the week after. You make an outrageous 80-odd, which sets up a test victory. And there's a lot of emphasis on your bat and the top of the handle, which says, fuck it, which kind of is almost incongruous sitting here now. You're so softly spoken and such a gentle and nice man. And yet, like, wow, this is a bit different here. And, and you spend a lot of time talking through the summer about your attitude and how it evolved. And if you can share with us how perhaps your first time in the test side, where people thought you might be a bit too timid for the rough and tumble of test cricket, differed to this particular journey you're on now where you've had such success. Yeah, I think, well, the, <clears throat> obviously that got caught on camera. That's actually been on my bat for, um, I'd say, probably sort of since I first started playing international cricket I remember Mark Borden who's still involved with ECB was a psychologist we sort of spoke about what is my best mindset when I'm I'm playing at my best how you know and and sort of fuck it was that mindset we sort of came up with you know and um, keeping cricket in perspective is something I've always tried to do I know as much as I care and I try my best does it really matter that much at the end of the day you know it's a shame to say it doesn't but it it really doesn't you know when you um, so that sort of just helped me sort of deal with certain things and and when I sort of question myself on the field of whether it be should I play this shot or should I attack this bowler um, sort of that fuck it sort of generally is when I'm at my best and I think coming back into the test side you know first of all you know when I first played test cricket it went quite well to start with and then I sort of started to overthink it and and went really quite away from that mindset and got more of the uh, sort of Um, sort of threats okay how are they going to get me out they're going to do this I need to be careful as opposed to how am I going to score runs right sort of looking from that positive angle as opposed to the negative angle so I was very determined when I came back into into the test fold having 
Yeah, but I was quite nervous in the fact I hadn't really played any Red Bull cricket for nearly two years. Um, but I was obviously coming off the back of playing the best cricket I've played in in terms of the IPL and, and full of confidence. Um, just take that in. Why not? Why why can't I ride the back of that? Just because yeah. the colour of the balls change, whether it's red, pink, white, blue. That mindset has to transform across all the formats and, and being able to to do that I, I remember first innings I, I got 12 or 14 here nicked off to a white and it was like I could have, yeah, easily have thought oh people think here we go again like yeah, yeah, yeah. that's yeah, typical um, this won't last very long um, but then in the second innings actually that mindset can also work in a occupying the crease sense I remember Amir bowling a spell to me where I was like you know I can I can stay in here as long as I want and trusting my defence um, my mindset's and and managed to get 60 odd here of, of about 130 balls so it's like I know I have that other side if I wanted it so I think that mindset thing is, is the biggest thing for me when playing cricket and that's what really stands out watching you bat now is the clarity and the confidence um, tell us about you know the anatomy of taking down an attack when you when you're targeting you know who who you're going against what areas you're trying to score that awareness and that deliberateness because that's the area where we think you overlap with Glenn Maxwell a bit is that making really deliberate decisions about exactly what you're going to do against each player and so on yeah I think that's a real sort of science of of the game sort of trying to work out um, certain things there's certain guys I enjoy watching who certainly do that I think Dhoni is the obvious one to say you know over time chasing targets he is very clear of sort of this is who he's taking down this is what he's going to do and and I think um, experience has really helped with me with that um, sort of knowing I can do it I've done it before played against these guys you know, and sort of flipping it around as well sort of you know what are they thinking bowling to me you know they're under pressure as well so they've got to perform because they're worried about me getting them uh, and I think you're sort of just going through I, mean, I think in one day cricket the scoreboard is so clear it sort of paints a picture of what is required from you right now what do you need to do and you can you know sort of pick that to pieces and in, in, in how does it look to you it might look different to someone else at another end but and then you're just trying to work out on certain days certain bowlers may feel easier to face than another bowler some days I feel like oh, I can only hit the ball on the leg side like my offside game's gone but instead of fighting that as I may have done as a younger player I'd say oh just just go with it just hit every ball through mid-wicket if that's where it sort of feels uh, and yeah I think you're just trying to work out your maths you're saying what is the equation who's got overs left um, how many am I comfortable taking off the last five overs or or do I need to break the game earlier and you're just sort of putting all that into your computer and, and trying to make the right decision Josh Butler uh, thank you so much for having a chat with us today. Uh, we, as I said, we could probably sit here and talk to you for several hours and it'd be fascinating going through the different ups and downs of your career. But 2019 is a World Cup year, so you're a busy boy. It's an Ashes year as well. So um, we hope that you get all the uh, all the excitement and success out of it that you possibly can. And thanks for being part of it today for Kookaburra. No worries. Thank you. Well, I'm Daniel Norcross and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is The Final Word, story time with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. The show this week was brought to you by Frank Ward. Uh, thank you for giving us all of the subject matter on today's show. Thank you also to Joss Butler. Even if that thanks is for something you did a year ago, you can have it again. We're generous like that because 
you were willing to be interviewed during a World Cup, which honestly is probably a time when you have other things on your mind. Yeah, that's exactly right. And thanks to the ECB for making it possible back then too. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Bad Producer Productions. They are brilliant. They're so, such good people to work with. Jay Mueller, Astrid Edwards and Dave Collins who edit this show week in, week out. As we always say, badproducerproductions.com is the website to go to to listen to their other brilliant sports, arts and comedy podcasts. Thanks to everyone who reviews and rates us on iTunes. That may not sound like a big deal, but in terms of getting the show to more people, especially through iTunes, which remains the biggest podcast uh, platform, that that's very helpful. And thanks to you, Jeff, for spending your Saturday night in hotel quarantine talking to me and, and doing another story time, which does take a fair bit of work to get off the ground each week, but, but we love doing it. I was very happy to do a show with you tonight and spend a few hours looking up the numbers because it's given me something to do for a few hours <laughs> in quarantine and we may be, maybe we'll do this show daily for the next 14 days of the final word quarantine daily just just to keep me occupied uh look we'll we will be back again midweekish um once once the australians have played their one day games against england and we'll have a bit more to talk about on the field and there'll be story time on the next weekend as well until then you can make contact with us in all the usual places but for now this is the final one. I had to go about it right.